It's great to be with you this morning. Is that text new to anyone? I think maybe I have sung that before once. That's a great text. Thank you for singing that. It's reflective of our lives being a sacrifice of reasonable worship. I had a teacher in high school who had us do a project based on a poem. I can't remember who wrote it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's a great truth. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 49. As the book of Genesis comes to a close... The author, Moses, records the final words of the patriarch Jacob before his death in Genesis 49. And you'll notice as we read this chapter, there are three main parts. You may even just be able to see it visually, depending on how your Bible is laid out. You'll see there's an introduction of two verses. And then uh, in verses 3 down through verse 27, 28... Jacob blesses his sons, and that's in a, in a poetic form. It may be reflected in how your Bible's laid out. And then in verses 29 through the end of the chapter is his final charge before his death. And in the main portion of the text, verses 3 through 28, the bulk of the chapter may be broken down, you could say, by mother of the sons, They're not exactly in birth order, but the sons of Leah are listed first in verses 3 through 15. And then the sons of the handmaidens, Bilhah and Zilpah, come next in verses 16 through 21. And then finally, the sons of Rachel in verses 22 through 27, Joseph and Benjamin. I'd like to draw several other observations before we read that I believe will, will aid our understanding as we do so. Uh, Although Jacob doesn't uh, explicitly claim to have a word from the Lord, like you might expect in the books of the prophets, thus says the Lord, or the Lord spoke to this prophet, say to Israel, Jacob does speak of the future as a prophet, apparently, at least in part. Um, You see there when he says in verse 1, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. He speaks in some measure as a prophet, but as we'll come to see, it's also at least in part speaking from fatherly insight into the nature of his sons, their character up to this point in their lives. And you see that in words to Reuben and especially to Simeon and Levi. But also at the end of the chapter, we learn that this poetic oracle, this blessing at the end of Jacob's life, is in fact a blessing to his sons. If you look at verse 28... All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. And furthermore, it says that these blessings are fitting to each son. Keep reading. He blessed them, everyone, with the blessing appropriate to him. According to Moses, the author, this was not just in the future, Jacob said that, But it was a blessing. It was something of his inheritance, something of what he owned, given to his sons. And it was fitting to who they were or who they would become. It was appropriate. It was well-suited. And the final observation I'd like to make is this blessing comes in the stream of God's covenant to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We should note the obvious fact that these sons of Jacob are the promised seed of Israel. We noted very early on in our study of this segment of the book of Genesis that much of the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob revolves around seed. And you can think back through their stories, the struggle over descendants. Abraham is an old man. He doesn't have a son. He's commanded, finally, once he does have him, to sacrifice his son. Isaac doesn't have a wife. How can he have children? There's so much drama surrounding this promise of a seed. But finally, it's coming to fruition. And these sons are seed. They are the ongoing fulfillment of that promise. They're the seed of Israel. 
But also you should note, we should note, that what constitutes most of the content of this chapter is not just a word to these sons, which is part of the promise, but also it deals with the land. Much of what we'll read has to do with the land of Israel, the promised land, and the blessing that would come with it, which now has been the hope of this family for over four generations. So let's read carefully, give our attention to this chapter to learn what God would have for us. Genesis 49, God's word said, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From, a, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches or crouches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull or duller than wine, you might have in the margin, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore and he shall be a haven for ships and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. For your salvation I wait O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, 
which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This is the word of the Lord. And at first reading, that may be a little dizzying. I know it was to me, it has been to me, and I trust with the Lord's help we'll be able to understand not just what is going on in the chapter, but also how we can respond to this. So what? In this chapter, I believe we see the final words of Israel demonstrating his faith in the promises of God. You see, as he addresses his sons, the seed, the promised seed, about a land that he has yet to receive, And then as he gives orders about his bones, he is demonstrating faith that God said, I will give you this land. I will give you nations and kings will come from you. If we were to read Hebrews chapter 11, we can get some insight into what's going on here. Hebrews 11, 6 states, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. A few verses later, we read about all of these heroes of the faith, them demonstrating their faith. And just by way of introduction, I want to set our minds on this fact, that Jacob is demonstrating faith in God's promises. All these heroes of the faith in this chapter died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they've been thinking of of that country from which they went out, speaking primarily, I think, of Abraham, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph are specifically commended for their faith. And I want you to see that Jacob does all three of these things. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, his sons, even regarding things to come. Doesn't Jacob do this? He blesses his sons regarding things to come. Jacob, by faith, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, we looked at that several weeks ago, and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, who is here in Genesis 49, we don't see this quite yet until Genesis 50, but Hebrews writes about it. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. And what does Jacob here do? Like his father Isaac, he blesses his sons, even concerning things to come. And like his son Joseph, he gives orders concerning his bones because he believes that his people, Israel, who are not yet a nation, will one day leave Egypt and take possession of this land, Canaan, because God promised it. So we can say with confidence that this man, Joseph, is a man who is pleasing to God because he lived by faith. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1 1 says. It's living, believing God about those things that are maybe present, but we can't observe them with our senses, or things that have been promised, things that God said will happen, but we haven't yet observed them. They haven't yet come to pass. Jacob is living as though those things are real, and he is pleasing to God, and he's demonstrating his faith in the promises of God. And he believed God, You could say, like it was said of Abraham, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Jacob died then, a man of sincere, God-pleasing faith, doesn't he? That's the only way to die. It's the best way to die. Would you be pleasing to God? Would you die in this way, believing God? Would you come to the eternal gates and receive a heavenly welcome because you believed 
God, particularly about his son, Jesus Christ. If any will confess his name, they will be saved from their sin. Whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's a wonderful promise that we have that we must believe. But to the text, we looked several weeks ago at Reuben and Simeon and Levi. And we won't give extended attention to them, but to this introduction, Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. He's speaking about things coming to each of them in the future. Some of them sooner than others, not all. In the end of days, some when they get into the land of Canaan. And it also, like we noted, has to do with their character up to the present and the fortunes of their tribes in the future. And immediately, I believe, because of what we've already looked at in Reuben Reuben and Simeon and Levi, the consequences that are coming to them, the kind of anti-blessing that they get, the shame that they receive in front of their brothers, we're confronted with this lesson that what we do in our lives matters. Because this is a blessing, this is... Jacob's grace to his sons, God's grace to these children, but also it's appropriate to them. And there's a little bit of tension. How can it be undeserved, yet at the same time appropriate, fitting? Well, in God's economy, isn't it true? The whole scripture testifies to this. That the choices that you make today, in large measure, determine the path that you're on tomorrow. So in the case of Reuben, a youthful rebellious, lustful Reuben. He took little thought of the generational impact that his action of immorality would have. Or headstrong, self-willed, partners in crime, Simeon and Levi, when they went and slaughtered a whole city just because they were angry at what had been done to their family. They never imagined the kind of blessing they would miss out on in their singular day of passionate anger. And sin often works this way, doesn't it? that we think we know what's best in our foolishness, we're blind to the path that we choose for ourselves. And if it's a path of sin, Proverbs said, the end thereof is the way of death. But praise God, doesn't righteousness work this way too? If we sow seeds of righteousness, we receive the benefits and the rewards of that. Our choices matter whether or not you discipline yourself, whether or not you discipline your children, whether you sow seeds of peace and righteousness with your spouse, whether or not you guard your eyes on the computer or on the TV, whether or not you prioritize being with God's people, being in the word. There are thousands of choices that we make in a day, that we make in a week, and they do matter. They make a difference to our lives and to our children's lives. Do you consciously seek to honor the Lord by the choices that you make at work? With your family, toward your spouse, with your time, with your money. Jacob is speaking words that will come to pass in future days. Things that are coming to these sons, but it's also a blessing appropriate to them. They've made choices and they're reaping the consequences. But also notice he calls them sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. These are the 12 sons of the patriarch Israel. And the only reason we know about them today, the only reason they have any significance is because God placed them in the covenant family and he made a promise to Abraham that he kept to Isaac, that he kept to Jacob, and he's about to keep to these men. These men are highly privileged among men to be known as sons of Jacob. And they're commanded to listen Heed what I'm about to say to you. There's a sense of obey this, what I'm about to say. They're to give attention to what Jacob's going to say. They're to value it and accept it and abide by it. And then he gives the blessing. And we already considered the ruin of the self-will of these first three, but also God's grace to even name them among his people. And then we come to Judah. And I've called Judah the lion-like leader. Judah the lion-like leader. You see in verse 8 how he is to be the leader of the family. And this is really striking 
Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. It wasn't Levi, it wasn't Reuben who would have preeminence, though he was the firstborn. He had disqualified himself. It wasn't Simeon and Levi. They had also disqualified themselves. Who was going to be the preeminent one of the family? Who would receive that, uh, that right of birth? It would be Judah. Maybe if you read this story, you would expect it to be Joseph who would receive all of the blessing and the birthright. He would receive everything. He had these dreams. His brothers are bowing down to him. Judah was the one who hatched the plot all those years ago to throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery. Judah was the main actor, the influential one, scheming against his brother Joseph. Why is he receiving such blessing here? We've noted in previous study how Judah really did come to the end of himself. The Lord pursued him when he was trying to make his own success, rescued him. Judah turned from his wicked ways and by grace was using his God-given charisma, ability, leadership, eventually to plea for his brother's Benjamin, his brother Benjamin's life, a man who had been transformed. And now in verse 8, he is the leader of the family, a man to be praised and honored by his family recognized as the leader among his brothers. His brothers would praise him. He would be victorious over his enemies. They couldn't escape him. He would have his hand on their neck. And then he also gets the royal treatment, the, the, the treatment of a royal victor. His brothers are bowing down to him. But then Jacob describes what that leadership will be like. And in fact, he will be king of the nation. Look in verse 9. Judah is a lion's whelp or a young lion, a young adult lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, you may have in the, in the margin there. He lies down as a lion. And as a, uh, you may also have in the, in the margin, a lioness. Who dares rouse him up? He will be mighty as a lion. He will be undisturbed. In his reign, he's a man of great victory and power. This picture of the lion's whelp is a strong young lion just reaching adulthood. He has all of this boundless energy and vigor of youth. And it's also indicative of royalty, as we see in the next verse. The lions have, a lion has signified royalty for millennia. And the picture here is of a young lion, successful in his first hunt. He caught that, that stag or whatever it was out in the desert, out in the prairie. He's just rising from satiating himself on this prey. If you've seen any of these nature documentaries, you can, just, you can picture the, the blood and the gore all over him. Just this mighty lion looking around at any you know, hyenas or anyone who might be jealous of jealous of his prey, just daring them to come. And he's full, and he's got enough. And what does he do? He goes and he stretches himself out to digest it all. He goes and crouches down. He lays down as a full lion is the picture here. He's finished. He's going to take his rest in his den after a tiring hunt, a satisfying meal. And then the, the comparison is extended. As a lioness... I think the, the implication is with her cubs. So like a, a full, young, adult, strong male lion resting after a meal, like a lioness with her cubs, who's going to go to that den? That's a ferocious predator. Who would dare disturb him? There's a reason he's called the king of the jungle, right? This is a ferocious picture. He's undisturbed in his reign. His rule will be mighty. Fierce, unassailable, feared. This is what his reign will be like, his leadership will be like. But then he's not just the leader of the family or the king of the nation, but he's also the father of the rightful heir, the great son. The scepter, and here we do understand that they're speaking of royalty, and this is a family of 70, 80 people big by now. He's speaking of an established government with an established realm, a distinct people 
You see how Jacob is looking ahead to the future. This isn't anything that's going on right now. They're, they're refugees in Egypt right now. They don't own any land except for this one burial plot that he speaks of at the end of, this, end of the chapter. Judah is also a man of great uh, right, uh, propriety and eventual progeniture. The, the insignia of rulership are rightfully his, the scepter and the staff that the ancient kings would have, the, the ancient instruments of the Near Eastern shepherd king. This is how they were depicted, as shepherds of their people, symbols of protection and leadership and provision for their subjects. And those will be rightfully in the line of Judah until a future time, until Shiloh comes. This is, this is the culmination of Judah's rule in Shiloh is the word. Or you may have a translation that reads, until he comes to whom it belongs. And this, this chapter is full of a lot of challenges. As far as I understand, this is the first uh, full-length poem in Genesis. And there's lots of disagreement in manuscript evidence and just trying to figure out what the words actually are. And this word in particular gets translated in a number of ways due to Again, differences in manuscript evidence. And the word is Shiloh. And if it's a proper noun, that's a place that eventually, as you read the history of Israel, that's the place that the Ark of the Covenant would come to rest during the time of the judges. And the place at which the territories of the tribes were allotted, that's where kind of their home base at that time, the time of the judges, the time of Joshua. But there are also very old manuscripts that don't just keep this as a proper noun. They translate it. The meaning of this word is uh, he whose it is. That's what Shiloh means. He whose it is. And there are many old translations that actually, uh, many old manuscripts that actually write out what the word means. And that would, of course, be a reference to the great son of Judah being David. The Davidic dynasty ultimately culminating in the greatest son of David, which is who? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, son of David, son of Judah. And many would point to the identification of Jesus Christ in Revelation 5 as, what is he called? The lion of the tribe of Judah. There seems to be a reference here. And that is how I understand this verse to read. Nor the scepter's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. The rightful heir of the throne of Judah. Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. A son of Judah. The great son of King David. And when he comes, the one to whom these signs of authority belong. Authority and kingship over Israel. What will happen? To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Certainly when Christ comes again in glory and in victory in his second coming, all Israel will obey him when he comes to earth again to reign, but so too will all the nations obey him. Christ will set up his kingdom on the earth and rule the nations as the absolute perfect king. And all the people will be subject to him. And they will come to worship him as he deserves. So there is here an anticipation of what we will later come to know to be the Davidic covenant. David is of the tribe of Judah. And God, of course, makes this covenant with him that he will establish his house forever in 2 Samuel 7. And he does. And Christ will live forever. Your kingdom shall endure before me forever, God said. Your throne shall be established forever. It's a long time. And it will be fulfilled in Christ. Of course, this is a great honor for Judah to hear. Not only that he's the leader, but that he'll be such a great source of blessing to the whole world. But again, we should note how Jacob is speaking about the future in this way. While they're in Egypt, while they own like maybe a square mile in Canaan, while they're not even living in Canaan right now, while there are fewer than a hundred of them, while they have no government, let alone a king, they're, they're a family, they're a clan, they're not a nation. Yet he speaks of a whole king and of generations of, of lineage of kings. 
Why is this? Well, because his faith is set in the word of God to him and to his fathers that had been repeated. And specifically, God told Abraham twice, and he told Jacob in Genesis 35, kings will come from you. And he just takes God at his word, doesn't he? He doesn't see this. There's no way he can understand this. And if if he did begin to understand this, and he was going to kind of identify Joseph that way, because Joseph is kind of prime minister in Egypt, he's not even blessing Joseph here. He's blessing Judah. Jacob believed God. He took him at his word, no matter how little evidence he had seen of it yet. But the reason this is so isn't because he had no evidence, right? It wasn't just a blind faith, and God doesn't call us to this. Because when you look at Jacob's life, doesn't he have evidence in his life? His grandfather had one son. Two, but one son of promise. His father had just him and his brother. That doesn't look like a nation yet, right? But it was progress. And now Jacob has 12 sons. And he goes, he's living in Canaan. They're growing. There's 70 of them. He hears from God. I will bring you back. It's okay to go to Egypt. I will bring you back. And he believes. There's evidence for his faith here. I think there's a lesson as we note Jacob's example of faith. That when we simply accept God's words as true, rather than kind of doubting them until we see like proof or full fulfillment that they are true, We'll find, as we act by faith, we'll find that our eyes are open to all of this other evidence that's actually in front of us. To see that God is being faithful all the way until everything comes to pass. Because for Jacob, this is, this is centuries before the Messiah. Yet he's anticipating that God will keep his word. He's waiting for it. Is this how you operate? Does your faith work like this? Do you just take God at his word? Or do you demand something else? Do you wait on God? Do you hope in God? So Judah is the leader of the family, the king of the nation, the father of the great son, the rightful heir. But also you see in verse 11, he's the leader that God blesses. He's a man of great prosperity, agriculturally, economically, He ties his foal to the vine. If you're going to tie your donkey anywhere, it's not going to be to a vine, to a cultivated plant. And again, there's images here of settlement and cultivation in the land. This is the last place you would tie your donkey because he's going to ruin it. And then the next line takes it further. And his donkey's colt to the choice vine. You wouldn't tie it to any vine, let alone the best one, unless you have overwhelming abundance. And that's the picture here. There's overwhelming agriculture agricultural and economical blessing. And they're washing their clothes in wine, whether that's the, the, the people who are treading the grapes or those who are just so, there's so much excess, they just don't even take a thought about what, what they're washing their clothes in. There's great abundance, and this is of the Lord. But also physically, I believe verse 12 is a reference to the beauty of, of Judah, just physically, he's described in beautiful terms, his, having eyes darker than wine and teeth whiter than milk. He's, he's physically attractive. I, I believe the picture is just, this is a man and a tribe blessed by God in every conceivable way. It's just heaping on blessing after blessing. And when you think about this and read back through the life of Judah, because Judah is singled out by name in these chapters in the life of Joseph and Judah, it is astounding that God would show such a man such grace, isn't it? He doesn't deserve this. If anybody deserves this kind of thing, we would look at Joseph, right? There isn't really a sin recorded of him. If anybody could earn this kind of blessing, we would say it was him. But you look at Judah and you realize that's never the basis of God's blessing, never the basis of God's grace. It doesn't matter how good you are the whole foundation of any blessing that you have, any good thing that you've received, especially, most of all, the grace of salvation. It's not in anything you've done. We're much, every one of us is much more like Judah. Entirely undeserving. 
wicked to our core, intent on our own way. You see in Judah really a picture of someone like like the Apostle Paul, who knows so much. He has so much privilege, yet he's wicked and opposed to God. Yet God rescues him. He just pulls him out of his sin by his grace. This is Judah, the leader, the lion-like leader. But then we look at Zebulun and Issachar and Dan and Gad and Asher and Naphtali, and they've got a few words each, and our heads are maybe kind of spinning. What do we make of all this? And uh, Bible scholars and commentators, maybe you have a Bible uh, uh, study Bible in front of you. Part of the challenge of this chapter is finding an exact fulfillment in each of these cases, uh, and, and that is a challenge, but I think we can still understand the pictures and the, the things that are being communicated to these sons, even if we can't draw an exact parallel in Old Testament history. In some cases we can, but not in every case. So I just kind of gave a title to each of these ones as I understood the verses about them. And in Zebulun, I believe we see Zebulun, the shrewd businessman. He's told that he will dwell at the seashore. He will be a haven for ships, and his flank will be toward Sidon. And this is one of the ones that's a challenge, because if you have a map in the back of your Bible, uh, Zebulun's final territory allotment wasn't exactly right along the Mediterranean. Uh, So scholars have tried to figure out in what way is this true they weren't exactly at least not as recorded there's a possibility like dan we know that dan was in the south and they eventually moved to the north it's possible god didn't record zebulun doing something similar their final spot was somewhat inland Uh, but as scholars have kind of tried to wrap their minds around this there was a very significant trade route called the via maris the way to the sea that ran down from Egypt up through Mesopotamia, right through what was Zebulun's territory. And it's very possible that that could be how this was fulfilled. It's hard to say. But what is meant here is that Zebulun was a place that trade would go, a place traders wanted to go, a strategic location along significant trade route. And that is, even today, a significant part of Uh, the state of Israel's geography. They are right along the Mediterranean. And their flank, it was true that where Zebulun ended up, their their flank was toward Phoenicia in the north. This would fit well with the description there. But whatever is the case, I believe what's being depicted is Zebulun was shrewd in business. He knew how to make things come his way. Maybe you know someone like that. I have a particular friend that from the time I had known him. He just he kind of knew how to make things, make money go his way. And I, I don't have that impulse, but some people do. And maybe that's the picture here of Zebulun. And he has a blessing of being adept at business. But in Issachar, verse 14, as I understand it, I've titled Issachar as the foolish hedonist. He's called a strong donkey or a big-boned donkey, literally. He's hardworking. He's capable of long, hard work. He's a pack animal. He can do it. And the image here is him resting from his labor. He's lying down between the sheepfolds. He's taking a break from his labor. But notice how the poetry unfolds. He has this capacity to work hard and move heavy burdens, presumably for his own good. Lots of potential to conquer and to settle in a new land. But notice, he sees something that catches his attention. He's strong, lying down when he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. It's almost like he's seeing something and then he gets a second glance and he's drawn in. His resting place is really nice. And the land that he's on is really good too. And that's enough to entice him to get up and start working again. But what's the nature of his work now? He bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Of his own will, I believe the sense is that he makes himself a slave. And again, this is another one. It's hard to point exactly to where this would have happened in Israel's history. 
if this would have happened, it would have been kind of a, a reversal between the tribe of Issachar and the people of Canaan that they had conquered. And there are some extra biblical records that refer to this kind of voluntary servitude in that region that it's, some have pointed to as a possibility. But I do believe the sense is it's voluntary using his strength in the service of another for the, the, the ease that he finds in it. One person describes it as willingness to be serfs on good land rather than shepherds on poorer land. Because what were the people of Israel? They were nomadic and they were shepherds from their youth. And, you know, you see David as a shepherd down in the south of Israel when he's a young man. That, that was stock uh, Israel life. But there were places that were more lush. And if you could somehow get out of being a shepherd, it would, in some way of uh, evaluating, could be better to be a serf on good land rather than a shepherd on poorer land. The sense is that he's using his strength and his freedom in service of others in order to find certain kind of security and rest. And I do believe the key to this verse is what he saw. It's what he sees that entices him. And there's a lesson here, isn't there? What's our phrase? The grass is always greener on the other side, right? And Issachar, the strong, big-boned donkey, he sees that. And he doesn't need to be in service of another. And I don't think the sense is quite uh, the insanity of enslaving yourself. He's capable on his own, but there, there does seem to be this kind of silent value judgment in these words, that it would have been better for him to continue working hard as he was capable of doing in what he was doing rather than looking at something else and setting his heart on what he didn't have. That's why I've titled Issachar as the foolish hedonist. He's, he's consumed with what he thinks he can have, what he doesn't yet have. But then you see Dan. And I've called Dan the outsized contributor. Dan the outsized contributor. Because in these verses, I I believe we see an emphasis on the smallness of the tribe, yet the significance of his contribution. And there's a play on words here. Dan shall judge his people. When Dan was born, his mother named him Dan because she said, God God has vindicated me. And that's the sense of judge. Dan will judge his people. You see influence among the people. And then catch this word as one of the tribes of Israel. This is the very first time in the Bible that the people of Israel are referred to as tribes. This chapter, here in Dan and then later in this chapter. And this is significant because you see here kind of the the expectation that they will become tribes. They're just families now. And there would be influence on the part of Dan. He'll be a judge, but he will defeat much stronger foes. You see the effect here of what's probably a two or three foot snake on a horse. He shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls back. Though he's small, he can inflict great damage even on horses and men. Many understand this horned snake to be the horned viper of this region. And there's a a similar species in in the west of our country. The horned viper is a venomous, light brown or gray uh, sidewinder snake. That's how it moves. And it blends in, you can imagine, very well with the sand or it hides in crevices and rocks in this region. And its pattern on its back really optimizes its camouflage. While it normally feeds on something small like lizards, it does prey on birds or mammals that come close. And it's been known to attack even larger creatures like horses and people that come near. So the way it hunts its prey is essentially by ambushing it. By It burrows itself in loose sand. It leaves its horns exposed. And it waits until prey gets close before just exploding out, striking its victim. 
And it, from what I understand, has a mix of some 13 toxins that aren't deadly to humans but uh, can have serious side effects. One man who wrote a, a kind of a natural history of the Bible, the Bible lands. He was riding his horse through the Sahara in northern Africa when his horse did just this. It reared back in terror, and he wrote in his journal that he didn't know why until he looked and he saw this creature with its eyes fixed on its horse, just some three or four paces ahead, ready to strike him. And it had this exact effect of the horse rearing back. It's a little predator, but it's powerful. He'll be a judge in Israel and a terror to enemies much stronger than he is. And if you look for a parallel, even the Jewish rabbis saw in this a parallel to Samson, who was a judge from Dan. And you see how fitting this description is. He was a judge in Israel. He often hunted the Philistines by great cunning. He was one man, but in his lifetime he slew hundreds, thousands of people. And he was a terror to them. And they were just kind of coming and going in Israel as they pleased. But he was able to wreak havoc on the Philistines and death on them with supernatural strength in a way much like described here. And before he moves on to Gad, Jacob then utters a prayer here. You see it in the end of the verse. And perhaps it's with reference to this conflict, this, the, the gathering of conflict around Dan and Gad. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. If these tribes, particularly Dan and Gad, but any of them, these tribes will survive, it will only, because, only be because God makes it. So, and Jacob knows this. So he calls out on the Lord and asks that the Lord would preserve his seed that is now here, but it could be extinguished in a moment. He's expressing his faith in prayer toward God regarding rescue from their enemies. He's hoping in that. He knows they need the salvation of the Lord. Do you rest in God and wait for him to protect you? I don't... I don't mean let go and let God. I'm not taking any reasonable measures. I just mean in your heart, do you rest in his care? And have you set your, your hope of protection and deliverance in him first and foremost? It's part of the fear of the Lord to wait on his salvation. It's a posture of the heart. It's an attitude that lurk, looks first to God for protection and for refuge. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Very quickly, Gad, I've called him the dogged warrior. There's another play on words here. One author called this one extended pun. There's just, if you like puns, uh, this would be a a great one to study for you, I guess. Uh, And as I thought about this, I wondered if maybe Jacob knew that Gad had a lot of dad jokes already. Um, but there's six words in this, in this blessing, and four of them start, go with that sound. Good to Raider has that sound in it. Raiders will raid him, but he will raid at their heels. And raiding isn't like full-scale warfare. It's just kind of like a sortie out and back. David did this when he was living in the land of the Philistines. Um, and it's just it's a sudden attack. And they're going to rob you and wreak havoc, and then they're going back. But Gad isn't overcome. He's a a dogged warrior. He goes out after them right after they come, and he wins it all back. Much like David later would do when his men were looted and their wives and possessions were stolen. As for Asher, verse 20, I've labeled him the reliable connoisseur. His food will be rich. He'll have an abundance in quantity and quality. It will be very good and scrumptious. And he will yield, and I think the sense is, he will provide royal delicacies. And you see this actually borne out in Asher's history. And maybe there's a reference to, you remember in the time of Solomon, when his different managers of the tribes of Israel are bringing him food, one each month. And Solomon is sampling different cuisines throughout the throughout the land of Israel. And you can imagine the kind of competition of, we, you know, we sent the king this, and the king likes this dish the best, and this, and this version of goat, and whatever else. But Asher, his food would be rich. He would have abundance and 
It would be fine food. It would yield royal delicacies. Naphtali, the swift messenger hastening on. A doe set loose, I believe reference to his swiftness, bringing beautiful words, likely words of victory, much like Deborah and Barak, singing their song. Barak was from Naphtali, a bringer of the message of victory. Joseph and Benjamin, the final two, the sons of Rachel. Joseph, the abundantly blessed one, and Benjamin, I called him the remarkable wolf. Ravenous, fierce, quick to do his work, quick to share with others. But Joseph, many words are devoted to him. We won't be able to look at all of them. He's favored, verse 22. He has abundance of fruitfulness and he's set up for long-term stability. He's by a spring and it's obvious abundance. It's just running over the wall of the vineyard. And all of that abundance brings the attack of other people. And you see the parallels in Joseph's life with his brothers with Potiphar's wife, slandering him, attacking him, trying to kill him. Yet in verse 24, you see that he's resilient. His bow is steady. His hands are skillful. Or the the English Standard Version reads, they were made skillful by all of these titles for God. How did he maintain such stability in his life? If you look back and read the story of Joseph, you can't But notice the favor of God on his life. Joseph trusted in God. And you see that. He's dependent. His bow remained firm. His arms were agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. By the shepherd, or because of the shepherd, because of the stone of Israel, because of the God of your fathers who helps you because of the Almighty who blesses you. He's stable because of the shepherd, because of the stone of Israel, because of the Holy One of Israel, because God was helping him. He wasn't overcome because he had the help of the God who was faithful to his father, the Almighty God, El Shaddai. He was trusting in God. He was dependent on God. And despite all of these attacks, all of this opposition, God upheld him. And this is the way that God has revealed himself. Do you believe God about his character? He is mighty. He's a powerful protector. He upholds you. He's the shepherd. He leads and loves his own. He provides for his own. He's the rock, the stone. He's dependable. He's a shelter. He's the God of Jacob's father. He's faithful to his covenant through generations. And he's almighty, he's sufficient, and he's able to do everything that he's promised. This God helped Joseph. This God rescued Joseph. This God led him. He was faithful to him. That was the source of his resilience against opposition. Is this God the source of your help? Do you depend on him? Or do you depend on your own, I'm just going to buck up and deal with it. Or I'm going to crumble under it. What is the source of your help? Isn't God good? He reveals himself in this way. Do you know him in this way? This is who he is, and he never changes. We should trust him. And then you see the statement of blessing, abundant blessing, greater than Jacob has had, his fathers have had. There's a comparison here to the everlasting hills, the great mountains like Mount Hermon, Mount Carmel, the mountains of Lebanon that are just always green on the top because they always have water. These blessings on Joseph exceed those of the everlasting hills. He's blessed. And there's no wonder so many see in Joseph an image of Christ, right? He was blessed by his father from eternity past. He was content and perfect with him in holiness and in fellowship. But in grace, he came down to his own. But what does it say? His own received him not. He was despised and rejected of men, persecuted, slandered, opposed. And yet he trusted in his God. He he committed himself to his God. He stayed steady. He did his father's will. And ultimately, he was... He went so far as being killed. He was obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. He was a substitute for his enemies. He loved his own, even though they rejected him. And then what happens to him? For this reason also, God highly exalted him. He raised him from the grave in victory over death. He, he seated him as right hand in heaven. And God bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Are you trusting in Jesus for salvation from your sins? And then the conclusion. He blessed them, charges them concerning his bones. We're given this memory of the land that has been purchased, that is rightfully owned by Abraham and his family. Leah is given a great honor in death. He's going to go to rest by his wife Leah, who formerly he did not love. And we say, so what? Maybe you're convinced that these words of Jacob do demonstrate his faith in the promises of God. Just a few notes in closing. I do believe we see in Jacob an example to be followed of living faith. This is faith at work. This is faith taking God at his word and just thinking about what God says. If you, if you do a study through the lives of the patriarchs and find the times that God told them and reiterated a promise and then try to draw connections into their lives later, you see these men are weak and often doubting, but they're men of faith. And they're taking God at his word and thinking about them and treasuring them and making decisions based on them. They're acting as though it really is real because they believe God. This is how faith works. And we can take a lesson from them. But also, if you zoom out and you think about this in context, you realize that part of a response of faith, and I want to close with this, if you set this in the context of these brothers, you realize that All 12 of them, even Joseph, are sinners. They don't deserve blessings like this. They don't deserve rewards that are being guaranteed for them by God who made a covenant with them. If God treated them as they deserved, they wouldn't have a land. They wouldn't have a large and growing family. They wouldn't have economic prosperity. They would be judged for their sin. And part of a response of faith is the recognition that everything that you have by the promise of God, whether that's eternal life, whether that's comfort, whether that's provision, whether that's the assurance of resurrection, you have only by grace. That's the foundation of faith. I have it only by grace. And I think we shouldn't leave this text without setting it in its context and realizing that was true then and it's true now. If we're going to respond by faith, we need to realize that we don't have anything apart from the unmerited favor of God. And we should be humbled by that and full of thankfulness because of that. And I wish we had more time to zoom out even into Genesis and the whole law because this kind of stands as a bookend under the pen of Moses. As Moses nears the end of his life and likewise charges the people of Israel What is the primary demonstration of faith the rest of the Bible teaches? Faith works. Faith obeys, doesn't it? Jacob said, hear these words. Obey these words. And I think we can take a lesson that if we are going to live by faith like a man, a great man of faith like Jacob, we need to take it as our responsibility that we must obey the words of God. If we take the promises of God just as they are and believe them, one way we must respond, I believe an appropriate lesson for us here from this chapter, is we must also not just believe, but obey. God is the God of all creation. He's the God of you and the God of me. I hope that you trust in his son, Jesus Christ. But if you don't, he is right to demand obedience from you. And whether in life or in death, every knee will bow without exception. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is how we can glorify him now in this life, is by believing him, 
bowing to Christ and obeying the Father because we love him. Don't we have a gracious God? He is a God who keeps promises. The covenant-keeping God, he's fully capable of doing everything that he said he would do, and we must trust him. Praise the Lord for his word. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, we confess that we have weak faith. There are many things in our lives that would grab our attention, pull us away from thinking about your promises, but we don't want to forget. We believe that if we've confessed with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we are saved. We believe that Jesus has risen again and that he's coming again and we hope in the resurrection. We believe you. We believe that you are holy and that we are to be holy as you are holy. Grow our faith, Lord. And even when we feel our faith to be weak, help us to obey you. We always know ways that we can obey you, even if we don't know exactly what's coming. Give us faith like the faith of this patriarch, a man who was weak in many ways and failed. We sympathize with that. We know our own doubts, our own fears. Yet, Lord, at the end of his life, His testimony was that he was pleasing to you because he lived by faith. We know that it's impossible to please you without it. Help us to live by faith this week. We pray in Christ's name.